some years ago, I was very fortunate in being able to visit an island that was promoted as being a kind of paradise. And a little bit to my surprise when I arrived, I discovered that the brochures hadn't actually lied, and it was something of an idyllic situation. It was beautiful and tropical and lush, and there really didn't seem to be much in the way of um, the unpleasant. You know, there were no snakes, no wild animals, seemingly no hidden dangers. And it seemed to be this very benevolent and wonderful place, and there has to be a but in here. Except, but, for one thing. On this island, they did have one kind of poisonous tree, very poisonous tree. And it wasn't like there were forests of them. In fact, there really weren't all that many of them, but they were very present, present on beaches, in parks, uh, you know, on besides sidewalks, you would come across these poisonous trees. And everybody was really strongly warned about these trees, that one drop of sap from these trees on your skin would burn like acid and was powerful enough, actually, to send people into shock. And to me, it struck me as a little bit strange that, you know, in this kind of island paradise and this one thing that stood out, that seemed to be out to get you, it seemed to me a little bit strange about, you know, why, why didn't they cut them down if they were so deadly? You know, that seemed to be the logical response. It wasn't as if the islanders got anything at all from these trees. I mean, they didn't use them for wood, um, they didn't produce any fruit, and you couldn't even shelter under them when it was raining. When it was raining, it was the most dangerous time to be around these trees because you would get sapped on when it rained. So it seemed, you know, that they didn't cut them down at all. In fact, the most that the islanders would do was sometimes they would put a little bit of a fence around these trees and they would almost always hang a sign on the tree saying poisonous tree. Um, but apart from that, they were just left to be. And at one point during my stay there, I asked one of the people, I said, well, you know, why don't you cut them down you know, if there's such an issue? And he actually looked really rather puzzled when I asked him these questions. And he said, you know, why would we do that? He said, they were here before we were. And they are part of the landscape of our island. And it's up to us, actually, to take care around them. And it occurred to me that this is a kind of remarkable analogy for our lives, uh, for the way in which we often relate to our world and relate to ourselves, that Many of us probably find that we have one variety or more of poisonous trees in our lives. Sometimes those poisonous trees manifest in the times of difficulties or struggle or conflict that we find ourselves facing. And some of these struggles or times of difficulty are somewhat intrinsic to living, aren't they? We will all experience times of illness. Perhaps we will all experience times when in our working lives there are challenges, where we will all experience, surely, times when we meet people or are in relationship with people who are difficult or who we are in conflict with. 
intrinsically in our lives, we will meet loss. We meet things that we dislike or have aversion to. Sometimes, too, we carry these poisonous trees within ourselves, it seems, in terms of the patterns or the fears or the habits of reaction that we may experience inwardly that we dislike. Habits sometimes are patterns of reaction that bring pain to us or have painful consequences in our lives and relationships. Sometimes the poisonous trees we meet are ones that are rooted in our past. Memories, images, past experience, rooted in the past and yet which surface over and over again in the present, bringing sadness or bringing regret. What is our relationship? What kind of relationship personally do we have to the poisonous trees that we meet in our lives or in ourselves? Are we able to bring to them a simple acknowledgement and acceptance, seeing them as they are? Are we able to treat them with respect and with care and with understanding, knowing that at this point in our lives, perhaps not forever, not eternally, but that at this point in our lives, those poisonous trees are part of our personal landscape. In relationship to our poisonous trees, are we able to understand that our relationship to them determines their power? Sometimes this happens. It also does happen that our response to the poisonous trees in our own lives is one of how do I get rid of them? How can I get rid of them? How can I get rid of the people or the relationships that irritate me or threaten me? How do I get rid of the situation or the circumstances that keep disturbing me? Sometimes we look to look for ways to get rid of what we call my anger, my jealousy, my greed, or my self-consciousness. The list is almost endless, and so is the pursuit. A pursuit which is very often searching for an ideal world, an undisturbed inner and outer world, which promises calmness, and safety and pleasure. Acceptance is a most remarkable and precious gift to be able to offer it and to be able to receive it is truly a blessing in our lives. I think we personally probably have all experienced the power of being accepted by others. And the ways in which our being accepted brings to us and brings around us an environment of trust and confidence and openness. That it is when in those times and places and relationships in which we feel accepted that we can most easily open and deepen as a human being.
I think we can probably also appreciate the ways in which acceptance liberates, whether it is self-acceptance, acceptance of others, or being accepted ourselves. Acceptance always liberates other people or ourselves or the moment to be as we are, to be as it is to find our own way. Acceptance liberates other people to learn their own lessons, to find their own way in an atmosphere of respect and appreciation. Acceptance is a precious gift. I think it is also one of the most elusive gifts and qualities in our world. Although we may long for it, to be able to receive acceptance, to be able to offer acceptance. Our area, it seems, of greater habit or sometimes of greater expertise at times is in the area of control or resistance or aversion. When I first went to India, I must confess, I really did not like India at all. In fact, I really would have left immediately if it hadn't been for the fact that I had to go through countries which I found even worse than India. There was a lot of things I really didn't like about India, despite all the romantic stories. And one of the things that I most disliked about being in India was the fact that it disturbed me so much. And I didn't like being disturbed. And India is a place that actually is filled with the capacity to disturb you, to disturb anyone. Especially it is filled with noise. Now I happen to be one of these people who is fairly noise sensitive. You know, I don't do well in noise. India was obviously not a good place for me to be. So after a few weeks of kind of hiding out in a hotel room in this terribly noisy city, I fled to the mountains looking for silence looking for quietness, searching for a place where I could quietly begin my meditation, being pretty sure that my ability to meditate relied upon getting rid of all this disturbance. So first I found a home in a small village, which was all right for a little while. But then pretty soon I found that actually there was really a lot in that village that also really disturbed me. You know, there were all these people around and these dogs and this coming and going and buses that would come in. So I decided I would actually, you know, it was too much disturbance there. And I went a little bit higher in the mountains and found a hut, found a hut to live in. Which okay was again okay for a little while, but then I, still it was not okay because there were still people wandering by and knock on my door and try and sell me things and wonder what country I came from and what I was doing there. So I decided actually I needed to move again because I was being disturbed. So I went still higher in, on, up the mountain and pretty soon it was getting obvious that I was actually running out of mountains. So I found another place, another place to live in and you know I still found myself being disturbed. So this time I did things like put blankets up on the windows and earplugs ear in my ears and didn't go outside and yet still the world managed to intrude. In that part of the Indian mountains, there was this very this brand of enormous silver monkeys. 
And they used to come and uh, dance on my roof. It was a tin roof, a metal roof. And I would just sit down to meditate and there would be this stamping and galloping and thumping. And then I never found earplugs good enough to actually shut it all out. And one day I found myself standing outside my hut shouting at the monkeys. Shouting at the monkeys, asking them to go away and to stop disturbing me. And it dawned upon me, it took a little while, but it actually dawned upon me that the monkeys were just being monkeys and the sun was just being the sun and that none of this actually had any agenda whatsoever to disturb me. The monkeys didn't get up in the morning thinking, oh, what a good day to go out and get the yogi, isn't it? It was a good moment. In that moment of kind of stopping and pausing, you know, there was a, actually a, a kind of a revelation that came, that the monkeys were just being monkeys, the sun was just being the sun, and sounds were just being sounds. And that actually what really disturbed me was the capacity to be disturbed. With my capacity, my inclination, my, my, in a way, imbalance, that found disturbance in all things. There is a lot in our lives, in our world, that we can neither avoid or control. We can't avoid or control many of the disturbances that come to us, the pain we may experience, some of the losses we go through, and some of the sorrow that we get in contact with. We can't avoid it. Some, most often we cannot even predict when it will come. How we relate to all of this, which is so unpredictable, which is often so disturbing, how we relate to it, within that, that dimension, there is a whole realm of possibility. And this is the place, I think, where we need to look at the power of acceptance. It seems to me that there are three major areas, or three major dimensions of difficulty and struggle that most of us go through in our lives at one point or another. One area of difficulty or struggle that we may find ourselves in are those areas where we keep finding repetitive and sticky thoughts or feelings and that our st the repetitive nature of our discomfort or the presence of that discomfort is actually not telling us so much about ourselves, but it is telling us about the situation or circumstances that we are in and how we are in them. Sometimes difficulty is created because we are, or rep and repetition happens in our minds, because we are being asked to find the ways of clear responsiveness, of wise action, sometimes of courage, which we have not yet managed to find. Now, these areas of struggle are at times areas where in our lives or in our relationships, we are, for one reason or another, actually consenting to something or engaging in something which in our hearts we know is not acceptable. 
because it is, may have qualities of dishonesty or uh, inequality or injustice or blindness within it. You know, there are many situations at times like that in our lives where sometimes we are out of fear, often. Out of fear of not being heard or out of fear of, of consequences or out of the fear of receiving negative feedback or rejection. We kind of stifle our own intuition about what is true, um, what is wholesome, what is skillful, and perhaps find ourselves consciously and unconsciously either living in ways or being in ways which are somehow we are not in harmony with in our hearts. You know, there are endless examples of this. You know, perhaps you're in a situation where, you know, you're with a group of friends and there's a lot of speech going around which is maybe very gossipy or, or, or hurtful about someone who's not there, you know. And somehow, you, you know, we find ourselves kind of diving in and participating and engaging in it and the sense in our hearts that is left is this real sense of unease or, or, or discomfort. Because we're, we're not in harmony with what we know to be true and skillful and worthwhile. And this can happen in many areas in our lives, that we, we make choices or we engage in actions which we cannot be at peace with. This is an area of struggle um, that is not asking of us that somehow we uh, become more accepting or more silent or more inactive. This area of struggle is an area that is actually asking us to go beyond the boundaries of our fear. To go beyond the boundaries of our fear that actually make us either consent or engage in something we are not in harmony with. And to learn how to question, how to challenge, how to explore with skillfulness. That this kind of response is often necessary if we are to find a place of peace and ease in our lives, a place where we can actually rest without these endless residues. Now, the second area of difficulty that we often or may encounter in our lives is at times because we have a rather sentimental and romantic notion or view of acceptance. Sometimes because we have confused acceptance with a kind of sentimentality which becomes paralyzing or because we've confused acceptance with a kind of um, romantic, I think, self-image, you know, or qualities uh, about ourselves. You know, and that's the point where we find ourselves struggling because actually we, we perhaps find ourselves, you know, in difficulty with someone or objecting to something or struggling with something and we're not actually free to really explore that because we meet the power of our self-images you know and we may say to ourselves in those moments well if i was more loving you know if i was more accepting um if i was like this then i wouldn't feel this kind of discontent Sometimes, well, very much, acceptance really has a very profound relationship to our capacity to see things as they are. 
It is, acceptance does not have to do with a kind of neurotic exaggeration of personal responsibility. You know, that if I was always a better person, more spiritual person, more generous person, I would never have these feelings and the world is perfect and it's all me. There are things in this world that are pleasant, there are things in this world that are unpleasant, that we need to stay close to. Not bringing an extra layer of should, how we should be responding, but looking for what it means to stay close to that which is really difficult. To stay close to that which is unpleasant in a very open and very balanced way. To look for that clarity outside of our personal agendas of how anything should be. You know, staying close to the difficult is one of the great challenges in life. How to be accepting there. How to see something as it is and yet also be able to accept it. As the story of the Dalai Lama was giving a teaching in Dharamsala a couple of years ago and in the middle of the teaching a messenger came rushing in with this telegram for the Dalai Lama and he read this telegram and he burst into tears and then after a little while he explained to the people what the telegram was about and he said he just received the news that a number of, of very esteemed monks in Tibet had been executed and after sharing that news with the, the people who were there He said, let's dedicate this teaching to my friends, the enemy Chinese. To stay close to that which is difficult, to be able to see it as it is, and yet not to harden our hearts. And in the third area, or another area in our lives that we often find difficulty and struggle, is the struggle, the conflict and the tension that is born when we are endlessly trying to make life and ourselves different than they are. When we find ourselves trying to manipulate or control our inner and outer world, to fit in with our wishes, our preferences, our images. When we are caught in this struggle of endlessly trying to enforce upon our inner and outer world, our images and ideas and expectations, there is great difficulty in finding peace or calm in our lives. Because we are always struggling to enforce change upon others or upon ourselves. And what we meet then is frustration. And we meet resentment. In these kinds of struggles, when we feel so out of harmony with other people or, or with ourselves, it may be that we need to acknowledge that the distress we experience and at times the disturbance or discontent that we experience may actually not lie in the people or in the circumstances around us that the cause of our distress or discontent may not lie, actually, cannot be blamed, possibly, upon the thoughts or the feelings that we're experiencing. That the cause of our distress is often deeper. The cause of the distress we feel and then the struggles that evolve 
is often much, much deeper than most superficial circumstances or events. One of the forces of that distress and one of the primary forces of non-acceptance is aversion. Another one of the primary forces of non-acceptance and struggle is desire or craving. And another of the primary forces of non-acceptance is expectation. Now, aversion is an interesting dimension to explore. We can have a pretty powerful habit of aversion in our lives. And aversion almost comes in different degrees of intensity. You know, there's the small aversions that can kind of accompany us through our days. You know, the little irritations, the little complaints, the little dislikes, you know, the little discontents we experience, that kind of squirminess that we can carry through our days. They're not major dramas, you know, there's nothing really kind of life-threatening about whether our zafu is too hard or too soft or whether the lights are too bright or too dim or, you know, whether the food's too spicy or too bland or, you know, whether a person walks too slowly in front of us or too quickly. There's nothing particularly really that dramatic about it. And yet sometimes the mind kind of goes through the day with this little sort of complaining, you know, this kind of little little irritations where we actually, you know, don't feel just that sense of being at ease in the moment, where we feel like we're making these kind of little adjustments all the time, these, these, little, these little, you know, controls and manipulations and alterations all the time. These are the kind of mosquito level of aversion. You know, it just kind of buzzes around, makes a little bite now and again. But we're not going to die from it. It's just slightly uncomfortable. Okay? There's another layer of aversion that we can come across. Now, our larger aversions, um, you know, the aversions that we feel that are quite harsh, the aversions that manifest more, you know, when we find ourselves, you know, inwardly shouting at another person and, in judgment or the feelings that can arise of resentment or bitterness or negativity. You know, they've got a kind of stickiness around them, a repetitiveness. We find ourselves dwelling on them. And they're like a, a kind of like a small fire within us. You know, not something that's easy to let go of. And we're aware of the ways in which those layers of aversion separate us from other people and separate us from ourselves. They're the kind of like bees or wasps of aversion. You know, they actually carry something of a sting. And then there's a whole other layer of aversion. You know, the monster layer of aversion where there lives rage and anger and hatred and fear those levels of aversion that we sometimes find great difficulty in not acting out or we want to protect ourselves. And mo they most primarily and deeply affect our self-image. And in those moments of aversion, because of our relationship to aversion, often the primary feeling is, how am I going to get rid of this? Because we feel somehow ashamed or feel it's a heavy burden to carry.
Our most chronic response, most habitual response to aversion is resistance. Because, you know, we know the effects of aversion in terms of separation and paralysis and sorrow. And we also know that beneath many of the aversions in our lives there is also fear. The fear of being hurt or abused or overwhelmed or the fact of being hurt. I think to understand aversion, we also really actually need to go to this level. We do actually need to go to that place in ourselves where we carry fear, where we manifest fear. You know, if we always just pay attention to sort of the children of aversion in terms of complaints or discontent or judgments, you know, we just get busy with that, trying to fix, trying to avoid, trying to perfect. But we don't always really connect with and contact what the roots of that aversion actually is. And most often, it is fear. It is where we need to pay attention. Aversion can act as a kind of messenger to us. Instead of getting into avoidance, it's a time of waking up. It's really a time of waking up and giving our attention to our bodies, to our hearts, to our feelings, to our minds. Really actually asking those questions, what is the actual presence of fear in this moment? Where is fear moving us? What am I trying to protect? Where, where do I fear being hurt? What place is there within me that feels so, so available or so vulnerable that it is so easily wounded? To come into that which is most difficult is actually also the place where we find balance. Where we find balance and strength and steadiness in the midst of that which we find most difficult. Another of the forces of non-acceptance is in the area of craving and wanting and desire. It has a relationship, too, to sensations and feelings. You know, notice when you encounter something that is unpleasant in your meditation or in your day here or in your life, how quickly when we encounter something unpleasant, the thought does arise, how am I going to make this different? How am I going to make this into a better moment? How am I going to find those people or those experiences or those circumstances that promise happiness and well-being? It's so often we find ourselves facing the kind of never-enough mind, you know, that kind of hungriness of never-enough. The nature of craving, of course, is separation and the frustration of separation, always being feeling separated from that which we need, must have, depend upon, rely upon or want in order to be happy. The never enough mind makes frequent appearances and it makes us so restless. It makes us so very, very restless. When the craving is present, what we have in this moment never feels to be enough. And yet the more that we want, 
the more that we become more sensitive to a feeling of emptiness, of incompleteness, of lack within ourselves. And that feeling of incompleteness or lack sends us fleeing into the next moment, the next promise, the next thing that we can find or gain. It is a place in meditation to actually stay very close to that sense of restlessness, to look at that kind of hunger. In the midst of restlessness, in the midst of wanting, it's actually a time when it's so important to be still, to be present. You know, there are times in our life when action, wise action and wise response, is really creative and really needed. And there are times when non-action, of learning the, the, the value of remaining unmoving, is actually the most creative and rich pathway we can offer to ourselves. It is only sometimes when we stop still that we can actually begin to listen, to go a little bit beneath that restlessness, to really question what that sense of hunger or lack actually is. The third area of non-acceptance is in the area of expectation. And expectation also has a very strong link to both aversion and wanting. You know, there are very valid expectations we can have in our lives. For example, if you turned up here, you know, you would understandably feel unhappy if lunch didn't arrive, you know, or supper didn't arrive, or, you know, if nobody turned up to give a talk or any instructions, or, you know, somebody decided to do construction work in the meditation room in the midst of our retreat. You know, there are expectations that are actually fine to have. They are, they are valid. They are realistic. They have to do with, with our, the realities in our lives. And there are a whole other layer of expectation that has to do with a dissatisfied mind and, an, and a hungry heart. You know, I know in my, in my own journey, when I, one time I went to Thailand with very high expectations of monasteries and spiritual scenes. And I went to Thailand in order to sit in a monastery, you know, and practice meditation and be a yogi. And, and I expected it to be, I expected those monasteries to be an oasis of peace and calm, of respect and wisdom. And the reality was really very different in a number of the monasteries I went to, and I actually kept going from monastery to monastery looking for the ideal monastery to be the ideal yogi in. What is it? And I noticed that, you know, as I finally ended up in one monastery where I wasn't going to move for a while, I began to notice all the things that were wrong. You know, mostly because I had these very high expectations. I began to notice everything that was wrong in the monastery. First, there was a lot that was wrong in the way that women were treated. But the more that I looked, actually, the more that I saw. You know, there were these monks who played radios. There were monks who were standing around chattering all the time. There were monks who ate too much at lunchtime. There were monks, certainly, who were quite unmindful. 
And I began that, you know, the more I, I looked, the more I seemed to see of this. Actually, I, what I didn't see, of course, were all of the monks who were practicing really sincerely, who were incredibly generous, who were incredibly silent. No, instead, because my expectations were being dis- disappointed, I had this kind of tunnel vision, you know, that all I wanted to see, actually, was everything that was wrong. And it just became quite obsessive after a while. Actually, I could have written a book, you know, The Unholiness of Thai Monasteries or something. You know, I could have written a book with this long list of criticisms and ways that it needed to be improved. I actually, I didn't have any time to meditate myself because I was so busy criticizing, you know, and I had so much to think about and I had all these things to remember about all these things that were wrong. And I realized, I, some, one moment, I realized I quite forgot why I was there. I mean, I'd quite forgotten that I had gone to this monastery in order to practice, in order to be awake, in order to see clearly, in order to cultivate peace. I had totally forgotten why I was there. I hadn't gone to Thailand in order to undertake a program of monastic reform. I hadn't gone to Thailand in order to act as the conscience of 5,000 monks. You know, I hadn't gone to Thailand in order to improve the social system, although maybe all of that actually needed some reforms. That wasn't actually my intention to create a perfect world. My intention was actually to be awake. And it reminded me of, you know, a story someone told me in a very, you know, I felt very embarrassed about some time later, you know, when somebody told me about the story of actually this time it was a man in Ajahn Chah's monastery you know, who'd gone to his monastery and done exactly the same things that I was doing, you know, kept complaining to Ajahn Chah, you know, about why aren't they better meditators, why aren't they more mindful, why don't they eat less, why don't they do this? And Ajahn Chah had said to this man, he said, you know, you're like somebody who keeps, who keeps chickens and then goes out in the morning, picks up the droppings instead of, instead of the eggs. And I had, isn't it? Some truth in this. Mm-hmm. It is so easy to get lost in our resistances, to, to replay our stories and our judgments, and it's also pa- so painful. It is not the place we want to make our home. Our resistances hold habit and fear and pain, and they are also a place that hold a certain kind of allure for us. As I was speaking about yesterday, in those moments of endlessly replaying, it is actually really helpful to reconnect what our intention is in this world. You know, when we're in contact with another person, when we're in contact with ourselves and replaying our judgments and our shoulds and our expectations, is this where we want to make our home? You know, there's a lot of things we cannot take responsibility for in this world. But the one thing we can stay close to in our lives, and perhaps where we need to take that area of responsibility, is what is our quality of presence in this moment. We cannot fix the world. You know, we cannot necessarily change other people. We cannot kind of make the world fit into our mold. But one thing we can uh, connect with again and again is what is the quality of our presence in this moment? There's a verse that sometimes in the Tibetan tradition, aspiring yogis repeat before they begin to practice. And they say, 
grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and suffering on this journey so that my heart may be truly awakened and my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be truly fulfilled. Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties. This verse is not actually asking us to be, you know, martyrs for the cause or to go through unending pain or to beat ourselves. But what this verse is actually asking us to do is that we bring our aspirations in this practice, our intention and our intuitions into the, every moment in our lives in a very real way. That we live our wisdom that we embody our intuition. You know, anyone, anyone in this world can be accepting when they're undisturbed. It's not that difficult to be compassionate when nobody is interfering with what we want. It's not that difficult to be loving when we're being flattered. It's not that difficult to be forgiving when we're not, when we haven't been hurt. Yet in those moments when we are in contact with the person we dislike, with fear or with anger, with the uncomfortable, those are the moments that we are actually asked to really find very deep levels of compassion and acceptance and forgiveness and understanding. It is in those moments of contact, contacting the difficult in the form of thoughts, feelings, sights, sounds, people. In those moments of contact, we can begin to move towards those moments with pleasure and wanting and craving. We can begin to move away from those moments with resistance and aversion or judgment. And we can also learn to be still and present. This is acceptance and this is also compassion. The capacity to stay still in the midst of the difficult and the challenging, to listen well and to learn, is the place is what acceptance is and also compassion. Sometimes it's a step we need to take first. Sometimes we need to take that step first of really being willing to disengage from the activities of aversion or craving. You know, we need to be willing to step back from acting out our aversions, acting out our cravings, so that we can actually be still. Then once we have stepped back, we can be still and we can listen. And acceptance is not some sort of grandiose romantic notion. It is increasingly the capacity to see what is true and to be, live in harmony with it. And there's that wonderful Chinese saying that says, when my heart is at peace, the world is at peace. When my heart is at peace, the world is at peace. We have a couple of moments, quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.